Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism and the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for showing up for racial justice or surge. And I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December, 2014, being led by minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. I am thrilled today to welcome to the podcast, Reverend Jennifer Butler, the founding executive director of Faith and Public Life. In addition to the great organizing work that she leads at Faith and Public Life, Reverend Jen has also recently published, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny, which I think is very much right up our alley here at The Word is Resistance. So welcome, Reverend Jen, please introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a big fan of Serge's work, and you all have taught me so much. So I just feel really excited about this opportunity. Beautiful. So today we're going to be talking together about one of the lectionary selections for today that also happens to be one of the texts that uh, that you take on in your book, Reverend Jen. Um, 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 20, plus a couple of verses from chapter 11. So we're going to read this together, and I will start us off. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out from Egypt to this very day, forsaking me and serving other gods, and so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. 
So Samuel reported all of the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will, be, who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive, archer, olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we might be like the other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed offerings of well-being before the Lord, and there Saul and all of the Israelites rejoiced greatly. So Jen, I really like the flow of your chapters um, in your book where you move from like understanding the text to lessons for us in, in our own time and then to how we resist, um, what the lessons are for us and our resistance. And I actually think that's a great flow for our conversation today, to move from the text to the lessons to, to resistance. Um, so let's start with the text. What are some important things for us to know about this story? So I see this as a pivotal story in um, scripture. And what I try to do in the book is walk through these pivotal stories from the creation story all the way through to Revelation to show how the Bible truly is the story of a social movement led by God, a series of social movements to resist tyranny in all of its forms, to resist domination systems and systems of empire and those systems are sometimes imposed from the outside, you know, the Hebrew slaves in Egypt or Babylon invading. There are sometimes imposed from the inside by choices that we make to go against God's plan for um, equality and shared power. And so in this text, there are a couple of things to notice. Um, one is this is a dramatic pivot. God had told people at Sinai, uh, told the Israelites that they would be a nation of priests. 
And the way I see that, um, that's kind of a call to a type of democracy where everybody has a relationship with God and everybody's living out God's commandments. Mm. This is a move away from being a nation of priests guided by prophets and by judges to being like the other nations. Notice that emphasis, like we want to be like everybody else. Can you just let us be like everybody else? Um, And so it's not unlike what we see happen even at Sinai where the people go down and make a golden calf, you know? Uh, I remember as a child, like seeing that and being like, what? God just did all this stuff in the desert and let them out of Egypt. And then they go and they make a God that looks like the Egyptian God, you know, and they go back to Egypt, basically. Now here we see another turn. So they've been trying to live out this, this um, Sinai covenant, but now they're afraid. They're afraid because of the Philistine threat. And so, and a couple of other things. And so they're turning back again to be like everybody else. They just cannot live up to this vision that God has set before them. So there's, there's that. Um, we just want to be like the other nations. The other thing that I noticed in reading this passage, sort of doing a Lectio Divina meditation when I was writing the book, is the number of times the word take is mm-hmm. used in this warning. He will take, he will take, he will take. And when you really look at each one of those warnings, we can see that so present in our world today of how a domination system works. Um, it can be, as I said, you know, imposed from the outside and quite brutal, or it can be um, a gradual channeling of resources and, you know, making your children serve in a highly militarized society and, you know, taking your sons and taking your daughters. And then mm-hmm. eventually it's kind of like a, a slow progression kind of like the frog in the boiling pot progression, you know, to where in the end uh, you end up with this dramatic, you know, if this were on stage or like in a uh, a movie, it'd be like, dun, 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 and you <laughs> will be his slaves, yeah. you know? And so it's quite dramatic. But what also struck me and like going back to this text, and I, as I wrote the book, I really didn't know which texts were going to be my, you know, it's hard to, to pick for a while. And then they really fell into place. Uh, as a child, I never heard this preached on, you know, this mm. is so pivotal, this warning and what happens. Um, but I, I don't think I have heard anybody um, speak to this text. So I really went digging around to find some good exegesis and to see if my instinct was kind of right on about it. Mm-hmm. But, th- but those are some of the main things I see in this text. Yeah. Yeah. That, that um, when I was rereading this I don't think I've heard anybody ever preach on this text before either actually now that you mentioned that but when I was rereading to prepare for our conversation today I was struck also by the repetition of take it will take he will take he will take and I went through and I like circled them all and um that's you know it's not he's going to ask you And, and you might be able to share but he will take and Gosh, we you, and then and then as you said, you end up at the end of this this these warnings with and and then you'll be his slaves. So we've returned right back to Egypt, you know. Yeah. And gosh, um, what I love in your chapter is how you take those uh, um, takes, if you will, <laughs> and really map them onto our own uh, political and economic structure here in in the United States of the taking and the exploitation and the development of this, this militarized culture. I actually have written in, it must be from when I was in seminary. Um, 
in this part of like, I'll take your sons to, to work on the chariots and the horsemen and the commanders. And I wrote in the military industrial complex. It's right yes. here. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, and the, the exploitation of the labor and the exploitation of the land, taking the grain and the, and the vineyards. And, and all of that is to solidify. In this text, it's a king. In, in our context, it's, it's you know, a metaphorical king that is wealth and power solidified in the hands of a very few. That's right. Um, and so we're actually not very far from, from this, <laughs> this warning. Uh, and so, you know, I just, I find it to be just also like a very human text of, of the struggle that we have as humans, because this isn't a story that's really particularly unique to the people of Israel or, um, you know, we, we all have this struggle of, do we want to live in a way that's, that's, you know, uh, allows for the thriving and flourishing for all, or when we feel threatened and unsafe, do we actually, you know, then choose some kind of system of power and domination that ends up concentrating that power uh, in the hands of a few people to the detriment of literally everybody else. Um, it's worth thinking about that, right? Like, as we're getting into this text, like, um, this is an ancient wisdom, like you're saying, you know, it, this is an ancient wisdom being revealed here. And for those who are experts on studying democracies and autocrats and different um, systems like that, they will point this out that it um, tends to happen um, like autocrats rise to power in, in times of immense instability, slow growing, intensifying inequality, um, racial fears, you know, ethnic fears. Um, and when you delve into first Samuel, you find that that's exactly what's going on. You know, and so other pieces I didn't point out in terms of the text is like biblical historians can kind of go back and see that this was a time of intensifying wealth disparity. You know, they can mm -hmm. tell that from uh, archaeological digs. There's the Philistine threat um, and there's a failure of leadership internally. You know, they haven't been living up to their ethical system, mm -hmm. you know, so it's a point of vulnerability and instability. And then as you were talking out, you, you were reminding me of just how ironic it is that when, um, you know, there's, when we're operating out of fear, whether personally or communally, um, we choose to do things that ultimately drive us to that fear, to the, what we actually fear, you know, so they fear mm -hmm. getting dominated and conquered by another nation and being subjugated. And because they're living and making decisions out of their fear, rather than out of trust in God and compassion and empathy, they end up creating that which they fear. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's what we all do all the time yeah. in our lives, you know, even yeah. in my personal life, you know, I'm afraid my, my fear takes hold of my brain, that anxiety takes over, that loop in my brain takes mm -hmm. over, and then I end up making bad decisions based on sort of like that anxiety. That's yeah. it's always a place of weakness. Yeah. Just the simplest example, you know, when you're going to uh, like travel and leave, you know, a loved one at home, how you, how so often we pick a fight because we don't want to deal with, you know, our feelings of, you know, 
you know, I'm going to miss you. So instead we just pick a fight as if somehow that would be easier. <laughs> oh my God. I am like clapping symbolically and laughing yeah. here. But God, <laughs> that's such a great example. Yeah. Or even on a very basic level, if you do sports or you're running down the stairs or whatever, if you're like, I'm going to fall, you probably will fall, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to, yeah. there's like when I used to play basketball, Somebody told me free throws were 80% confidence. You know, if you sit there think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make this. No, but you say, I'm going to make this. And then you remember your form and do it. You're much more likely to make that shot. You know, that's mm. very simplistic examples. Mm. I mean, they're much deeper ones, but probably they're too personal for us to convey. Yeah. These are all great examples. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I love that, that this is one of the reasons I love um, scripture, because when, when we dig into it like this, these aren't like, you know, high fancy stories about, they're like human stories about trying to figure out how, how actually do we survive when we're being trampled over by Babel, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, you know, who's next? Like, how do we actually keep ourselves safe? Because yeah. I think part of what is, you know, happening in this story is, you know, and in, in kind of surrounding this story is, is God actually going to keep us safe or not? Because we kept getting squashed on. And if we think about um, like the, 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 the arc of, of first and second Samuel and, and what, you know, the scholars call the Deuteronomistic history, which is this whole kind of tale starting in judges through the, you know, Babylon's destruction of, of Israel and Judah. Um, you know, they're writing this, they're telling these stories and trying to make meaning out of their experience of having been conquered by a giant empire. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, there's just layers upon layers of, you know, what, you know, how, how do we stay safe? What does it mean to be faithful to God's way when we're still under threat and how hard it is? Like I have some really deep compassion for, you know, like living now and trying to live as an abolitionist, right? And like, yes. well, what do we do when, you know, my neighbor won't turn his music down? Like, <laughs> what do I actually do? Very simplistic, but real <clears throat> example. That's right. Um, you know, what do we do about, uh, I was talking with a congregation last night, you know, about the community safety for all work that we do around congregations, you know, you know, divesting from uh, relying on police and, you know, uh, what happens when our Black Lives Matter banners get vandalized by the Proud Boys? Do we call the cops and have them dealt with? Because they're violent and scary. I'm like, oh, yeah. What do we do? How do we actually create safety for ourselves that doesn't end up replicating the same unsafe systems that we're actually trying to get free from? Mm. And this is where the rubber hits the road, right? Like, so this is really getting deeper into what's happening in this passage, because this is real. Like I went back, I was like, okay, wait, 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 why, why are they so afraid? So you look at the chapters before this and they have really good freaking reason to be afraid, right? Like right. the Philistines are coming, you know, and the Philistines are big and they're like better armed and all that. And um, I love that you bring up, you know, abolitionists and defund we've been working a lot with you know defund police and i actually love like you know teaching that to people because so often what happens is god lifts up this vision 
But then the world around us says, you know, that's a nice vision, but it's not going to work. You got to be real. You know, you got to be practical, right? Our politicians tell us that yeah. all the time. But as people of faith, I think it is our our job to stay in the vision. And, and then your question is so well put. So what do we do? What do we do? We live in the tension between that vision and the reality. And uh, what I appreciate so much, like Black Lives Matter website, their, their materials on defunding police, to me, are so helpful because they're like, you know, this is what we're headed toward. It's going to be a gradual process. It is really hard. In the meantime, we're, we're figuring this out and we've got mm-hmm. to be willing to live in the tension. And I think that's so often we just want to be like the other nations, you know, like we want to go to yeah. like the really um, secure just be like everybody else. Like, can't we just like, you know, so um, that ability to live in the tension is a very spiritual place um, to live with those ambiguities. Uh, that's some of what trusting God is also about. So it's staying with the vision. It's being able to live with the ambiguities, to ask the questions, to not fear the, the smaller failures, you know, to realize, okay, we're going to get this wrong sometimes, or we're going to have to mm-hmm. adjust, you know, like, be compassionate with ourselves, but to stay with that rather than go to the sure thing, mm-hmm. rather than to revert back to the way things have always been. Mm-hmm. God didn't tell us it was going to be easy and really crystal clear, but, <laughs> but God set us on a journey, you know, through the wilderness, right? It's right, always right. through some rough terrain. Right. Um, but I love that vision because that, you know, I, I used to do archery too at camp and um, they always taught us that like, if you wanted to hit the bullseye, you actually had to aim higher than the bullseye right? Mm-hmm. So that's what vision is. If you don't high, aim higher than the bullseye, you're going to go down underneath the, you know, you're going to hit the target because the oh. arrow, arrow is going to go up and then curve and gravity is going to pull it down, you know, but that's the way I think of vision. We always have to aim high um, and we'll eventually get there. If we aim low, we're never going to. We'll never get, get there. If we aim low. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll be off target. We'll be very off target. Um, I think that kind of that tension or, or the, we just want to, we just want to be a nation like everybody else. And we see that in the founding of, of our own country of the United States of, you know, there's these like ideals around religious freedom and democracy. And yet part of what we enshrine into those originating documents are enslavement and genocide and the, three-fifths dehumanization of Mm. an entire group of people Mm. so that we can be like other nations like how and and we have have yet to to reckon with that history that's so reckoning with that history we are still reckoning so that is so deep so you know you go back to like the people who the white people who came and took Native American lands, and then eventually created uh, slavery and the categories and white supremacy system, they too were fleeing oppression, right? Like when you think about the the Scots and the Irish and Mm -hmm. all the successive waves and what they did instead of, um, you know, we're told this triumphal story of like, and we created the land of opportunity and freedom. No, we did not. We replicated the systems of Europe, you know? We, Um, we created a king and called it the United States. We did. And we see this even more like uh, a lot of us thought, okay, well, at least, you know, we're not perfect as a democracy and we're still evolving, but um, 
you know, at least we have this balance of power, but we saw how weak we were under Trump when he basically kind of functioned as a king, mm. you know, and we saw that so many of the ways in which our democracy, so-called democracy or fragile democracy, however you want to call it, the way in which it functions relies on a lot of norms. Like I never, who knew a president can't be convicted of a crime and go to jail? That was, of course, the way the Justice Department decided to interpret things. But clearly, mm -hmm. it's also like a um, thing that's never, not very, you know, clear in our constitutional law. So a lot of the reforms. How convenient. How convenient, right? So, so much of this, we realized, and some of us were like, well, you know, okay, Congress will, and the judiciary will balance out like a maniac uh, president who's off the rails. Um no, as it turns out, like a, a president really committed to this, um, you know, white supremacist uh, re-implementation uh, autocratic style actually can go quite a long way, you mm -hmm. know, uh, who has no regard for any sort of norms whatsoever. So uh, that, you know, but for those early on, I just remember the first weeks of the Trump administration, people were like, okay, one, maybe he won't be like he says he's going to be, two, you know, there are balances of power. Now, you know, it turns out presidents do have a lot. So get out there and vote because presidents do have a lot of power. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. And I think too, you know, I remember having a sort of heated conversation with my parents who were very much on the, well, checks and balances, the system will hold them accountable. And I was like, I'm not actually so sure that that's going to happen. Like, mm -hmm. why would that happen? You know, um, uh, you know, George Bush was, has yet to be held accountable for his war crimes. So why would we think that, why would we think that presidents would be held accountable for any of them? That's right. For what they do. That's right. And, uh, and so, you know, it's really on, you know, the credit goes to the organizing that happened on the ground in really key places that made it possible for us to get him out. And, and we're still dealing with the fallout of his, you know, we're still not going to, we're still not going to hold him accountable for, for what he did and what he incited. Yeah. And, and all of that is important. And I think too, you know, what, what something we can learn from, from how old this story is of how we, you know, we continually as, as, as humans choose that, which, you know, ends us up back in Egypt over and over and over again, you know, right. is, is that that was not an aberration, but again, kind of going back to, you know, the, those key things that, that, you know, violated the, the vision of quote unquote democracy, democracy for whom mm -hmm. certainly not democracy for the indigenous peoples of this continent, certainly not democracy for women, certainly not democracy for enslaved people, so therefore, we're not actually in a democracy. We live in a system that does its hardest to consolidate wealth and power in the hands of, you know, a very few white people. That's, its that's right. That's, that's right. What it was born to do. And so, um, you know, yes, we want there to be accountability for the previous presidency. And also it was not an aberration. 
It was not an aberration. And, and what we see in this passage um, about choosing to have a king is like, there are these turning points in history, right? Where you have a chance to like, do it right or do it wrong. And they choose the wrong path. And it takes them a long time to dig out from that. It, it, it slowly degenerates until you end up with Solomon, who is a classic autocrat. You know, he's he's the apex. A lot of Times people will, you know, I remember my children's Bible, you know, like Solomon and all his splendor. That's not the story. (laughs) He's so wise. Just like, no. (laughs) I'm like, no. So you can get the book and read that chapter on Solomon and be like, ah, no. And what's so refreshing, I find like my, one of my hermeneutics is like, go back to what I first thought as a child when I read this text. You know, I remember being like, this doesn't really, one of these things does not look like the other, you know, the street song, like it just, this text does not mesh with like everything else. Um, Solomon uses slaves to build the temple to God. So here's a God who says, oh, remember, I brought you out of slavery in Egypt and I am the God who frees slaves. That's what all the commandments are based on all the law that is repeated all throughout the books of the law and the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then Solomon builds. And, and if you look at that scene in the Bible too, God kind of looks at Solomon. I mean, at, uh, yeah, Solomon and, and actually, God does appear twice, I think, to Solomon. And so this is like really like a conversation. And God's like kind of a picture of God rolling God's eyes, you know, what I mean? <laughs> like, this is what you do, you know, really? and then God says, you know, what I really want is for you to live up to the, mm-hmm. the commandments and to Sinai. I mean, literally, that's that scene, you know, and you can kind of see it in the in the in the scripture. But the back to your point about like, um, you know, that this is what we've always been. We have these moments of reckoning. And this is what I appreciate about Reverend Dr. William Barber's um, uh, preaching is he talks about, we need a third reconstruction. And I remember when I first heard that years ago, I was like, wait a minute, let me go back to my history and thumb through. I remember this, but let me look. So after the civil war, we have like, you know, just um, barely in even 20 years in there. I mean, almost immediately Lincoln's assassinated, right? By Confederates. Mm-hmm. And then they start to dismantle um, reconstruction so that basically you have slavery by another name, right, you know, right. so we never really in slavery it becomes Jim Crow. And then we have the civil rights movement. And here's where I really bought into things, you know, Oh, we're getting better. We still have racism, but we're getting better. We've had the civil rights movement. We have the voting rights act. Oh, wait a minute. Voting rights act was gutted in 2013. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you know, schools are getting better. No schools are more segregated now than ever before, you know? And so like all of these things, um, you know, uh, economic equality starting to happen. No black communities lost like 40% of their wealth during the pop of the housing bubble, you know, because they were really targeted by predatory lending. Um, so, so you start to like learn all these facts and you realize, wait, that system is still in place and it intensifies at certain periods of time, but it, um, and we make a little headway, but then it gets rolled back again. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a constant journey. Um, and now we have a moment for another reckoning. You know, we've had like an apocalypse, an unveiling. That's what apocalypse says. It's not the end of mm-hmm. times. It's the unveiling of the powers and principalities that are behind the systems that we've been numbed to. We've kind of mm-hmm. fallen asleep and we're like, you know, oh, I'll go shopping, you know, watch some TV. But we're kind of getting numbed to what's actually happening in our society. Now we're like, oh, wow, there's all this stuff I didn't realize. I didn't see that whole, we have an uprising. People are waking up. And so this is another moment. Are we going to choose a king? And we're in that right now, very intensely. Are we going to choose a king? Mm-hmm. Are we going to confront our history? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of critical race theory and the attack that's happening on critical race theory. I think of the 1619 project and mm-hmm. the way conservatives are going after that. We're going to go confront our history. We're going to reckon with race. 
Are we going to set, are we going to do reparations? Are we going to set things right? Or are we going to try to paper it over again? And are we going to choose a king? Are we going to choose an autocrat, an oligarch? Are we going to continue to pretend like we're a democracy, but just go on with channeling resources up where, you know, inequality, economic inequality is at an all time high. And that's been gradually happening since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Woo. We're in a moment, you know, and so we we have a choice. We're in a choice point right here. Are we going to choose a king again? And it it makes me wonder about this text. If, if, you know, thinking about it with that layer of like, they're telling the story as a way to make meaning out of being conquered by Babylon and, and destroyed by Babylon. Like, how is how is this story and for Samuel like the reckoning for you know like we told you this was not going to work yeah oh yeah this this doesn't work and and they don't try it again I don't think you know um and here's the thing I forgot to say that if if you look at my chapter on Solomon too this warning that's given in first Samuel by the time you get to the story on Solomon um Solomon dies and that warning is reviewed almost point by point. Mm-hmm. And they say, look what has happened here. He has mm-hmm. taken your sons and daughters. He mm-hmm. has taken the best of your land. He has made you his slaves. It's like a bookend. Yeah. You know, because. Uh, and it only gets up, worse after that. Like, and it only gets worse after that. And then yeah, they're carried yeah. off into captivity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Reckonings. Hmm. really have to breathe into that, huh? Because yeah. I'm feeling it, man. Uh, oh boy. We are in that, we are in one of those moments. Like, are we clear that this does not work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're fighting that out because it works for some, right? And those some for whom it works are trying to convince all these other white people that it works for them too, mm-hmm. when it doesn't. And it doesn't. It works for a very few people in honest truth. That's right. And so it the, works this, for the king and his courtiers. And that's actually it. That's right. That's actually it. And, you know, the more clear that we can be about that, I think, as, as white people, you know, in Surge, maybe you've heard us talk about this, the, the idea of mutual, not the idea, but the, the value and the practice of identifying our mutual interest as white people in dismantling this system is being clear that actually it does not work for us. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of getting away from the, the white privilege framing of things. Um, Cause although it certainly does try to offer us bribes to keep us faithful to not God, if you will, in, in our kind of Christian thinking about it. Um, but it doesn't actually work for us. And gosh, if the if the pandemic didn't make that clear of the complete and utter lack of care for, you know, the vast majority of everyone uh, on the planet, including in this country, um, you know, then, gosh, like, you know, you know, I, I always I always try to remember like that that you know. Black organizers, indigenous organizers, you know, immigrants, you know, organizers have been telling us all along, this doesn't work. 
<laughs> this doesn't work. This yeah. Doesn't work. Um, we told y'all. <laughs> I told you. And, and I was definitely, you know, I have been one of those people who was like, well, at least we're not like, and I talked about this on the podcast. I cannot remember when, but it maybe, maybe it wasn't around the time of the attack on the Capitol or, or sometime during the election. I can't remember actually now, but it's there somewhere of, you know, spending time in Central America and then the, the definitely like fascist, violent, upheld by the United States uh, governments in, in El Salvador and in Guatemala and, and, and being, you know, like deeply sympathetic to that cause and, and wanting liberation for, for the people. And also like, well, at least that doesn't happen in my country. You know, at least we, you know, have free and fair elections. Like, and what the people were, had been trying to tell me in Central America was like, no, you don't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't actually. I've been know. thinking about confessing the same experience because I spent time in Latin America too. And I used to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then I remember one time at a, a parade, I saw somebody running around with a Ronald Reagan mask and he was standing behind a guy in a devil costume and mm-hmm. they were like together the devil and ronald reagan at yeah. this parade in guatemala right yeah and i sort of got it um but i didn't get that internally like we're not too far off from guatemala in terms of the concentration of power and mm-hmm. especially now you know where they have like 10 families that still control all of the wealth and mm-hmm. an indigenous population that's really suppressed we have similar things here, but there are ways that we kind of obfuscate it, you know, with our yeah. culture and our amenities and different things that we have, we can kind of soften it enough. And it's what Walter Brueggemann, the theologian calls like the numbing of the empire. Numbing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The numbing that's necessary. Mm-hmm. And the stories that we tell about the American dream and the land of opportunity and yes, and freedom and like, actually, no. Yes, we've been brainwashed with our history. And I, I grew up in the South, you know, but I think this happens everywhere. Yeah, um, you know, Daughters of the Confederacy, like mm-hmm. spent a lot of time revising our history. And the Southern Baptist Church was really, you know, separated because of slavery. Um, and post-Civil War, they created a theology that that would um, rival and take down the social gospel that was individually centered, personal piety mm-hmm. that uh, saw that, um, you know, that 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 taught that Jesus um, would come back only after the world unraveled and got worse. It wasn't like our duty to try to implement and live out the kingdom of God here and now, you know, in fact, we want the world to fall apart because that means Jesus will come back and set it straight, set it straight for who? For white Christians. Right. Right. So like there was a civil war history, a civil war theology that um, uh, theology of the lost cause history of the lost cause that basically we were all taught especially we white people, I should mm-hmm. be really clear because it, it was, we were indoctrinated as white folks. And so even, even as though so Christians. many of us is white Christians and yeah. we, and some of us like, you know, I've been at this a while. I think, okay, I got this. I don't, I just, mm-hmm. I'm constantly finding, I have to keep reconstructing, deconstructing, reconstructing uh, because I'm in it. Um, which gets to your, your um, point about, like really understanding how these systems don't benefit white people. And I've been talking to folks about this. I've had some people say to me, well, that that sounds nice, but it sounds a little naive. Like, you know, somebody's trying to make an argument to convince white people to come into this because, 
really, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to convince these people, you know, to give up their power. But I think this is so key to really understand how it impacts white people that, um, you know, like the majority of this country wants to raise the minimum wage. The majority of this country wants government healthcare, wants like a, a, a healthcare that um, is not dependent on whether you have a job or not. Right. We want those things by overwhelming numbers. Why aren't we voting for them? It's because the other side is mobilizing our racial fears against yeah. us. Um, a great book on this, by the way, is The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, who's an African-American policy yeah. expert from Demos. Must read, a must read, beautifully written. Um, so there's not only the, like this well-being economic cost, but there's this spiritual cost. And I'm, I'm getting mm-hmm. deeper into this. I'm, start, I'm starting to read a book called um, My Grandmother's Hands. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about that. Did you talk about it? I was like, y'all probably yeah, already talked about this. I was going to be the, yeah, my next word. Resma Menachem. really talked about that book. So yeah. Oh yeah, my yeah. God. So I'm getting into that. Um, we've got to understand that. And it's, it goes back to this thing I said about Solomon that like we portray him as like some, and certainly in my Southern upbringing in church, Solomon was the height, the quote height of um, the Israelites, you know, mm. and, and was living in God's favor and all of that. No, if you look at that text, there is there are two competing traditions within that account of Solomon, and so you'll read that account of Solomon. You'll be like, "Wow, they keep repeating themselves." But if you look at it, it's like story A, yeah, okay, same story again, viewpoint B. You know, viewpoint so like B, viewpoint right. A, viewpoint B, and so they're they're repeating the stories. But that's because it's like you have a, a a tradition that really liked the monarchy and sort of mm-hmm. benefited from that, and then you have the tradition that's like the Moses tradition. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, uh-uh, uh, this did not work. Yeah. You know, and so that that gets to the whiteness, like so, like Solomon became like the other nations. Did that work for the people? No, there's a civil war right after that. People come to uh, the next ruler, and they're like, "You need to set this right because your dad really messed things up." Yeah, and they refuse to do so. Civil war. Eventually, they're invaded because they get weaker and weaker. Everything falls apart mm-hmm. um, until Isaiah comes and helps show them that God is going to do a new thing. Yeah, yeah. I was going to mention that, the, like reading these stories alongside the prophets, who are who are also like you've got these competing narratives within this this arc of story and Samuel and and in Kings, and then you also have the prophets who are like, you know, y'all rulers are not doing your job, you know, <laughs> um, you're oppressing your work, you know, all the stuff in like Isaiah fifty eight, um, who are holding both like the structure doesn't work. And also the empires that are conquering you are also terrible and God's going to love you through it, through the whole thing. And we're going to figure out a new way, new way through this. Yes. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, that's where we find ourselves. Like we've ha- we're having to figure out an, a new way out of this disaster that has been, <laughs> the United States of America, if we want to really be as blunt about it as, as that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so there's a huge opportunity here and there's a huge threat, right? We don't know which way things are going to go. We're really at the uh, climax of the story, like that turning point that you can't get up and go get some ice cream for if you're watching <laughs> the movie of it. You know what I mean? like, what because right, <laughs> right now we're in a two-year hiatus where we have a Biden presidency. Now I say hiatus, 
Biden uh, is also a king, you know, so mm -hmm. we have to hold him accountable. We have to hold his feet to the fire. Um, we have to get him to be more visionary, more aggressive. We saw this during the refugee caps. I mean, Biden didn't come in right away and raise those refugee caps. And the faith community and others really threw down on that. And they got him to right away raise those caps, you know. So we got to hold him accountable. And um, right now, Congress is going to take up um, in the, uh, the For the People Act um, to reform our democracy and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, we need to be, we need to do everything we can to get those through. We cannot like um, hang back. Also, the, the, infrastructure bill the um that biden is trying to get through we need yeah. to make sure there's as much money in that as possible we need to be we need to push hard so we got to hold him accountable but here's the other thing we have a midterm election coming up in two years and we all mobilized really well and got trump out thank god right so yeah. this this most of us don't pay attention to these midterm elections 2022 is gonna um it's Raphael Warnock in Georgia, you know, mm -hmm. Martin Luther mm -hmm. King's church. Is he gonna be reelected again? If if we lose, and usually historically, uh the other party that's out of the presidency usually wins a midterm election, always does. Yeah. So and we're we barely, you know, we don't even have enough of a majority right now in Congress to uh pass the things we want to do. So if we don't do well this election cycle, mm -hmm. it, it's gonna wreak havoc. Um and things, you know, opportunities will really change. You know, things get, will end up back sort of in, a, in the Trump era um, of, of politics and that kind of feeling again. Um, and we'll have a longer haul, basically. Yeah. So the next two years, you know, we're Not still key. just pulling and, out of this. So we want to encourage folks to, you know... Maybe hiatus is not entirely the right word, even. It's like, yeah, we that was a bad word for me to use to, to catch our breath, but the, the organizing to build a world that we want can't stop. Cannot stop. It cannot stop. No. We have to we have to continue and to go as hard as we as we did at the end of 2020 and, and during 2020 with responding to the pandemic, the organizing we we collectively did around that, the organizing we did in the summer of the uprisings to defend black life, the organizing we did to, to get a, a, a tyrant out of office. Um, you know, we, we have to rest and also we can't stop. Exactly. We can't, we can't sit back and be like, Oh, you know, now a Democrats and like, no, it's, we still have a King. It's still a King. Yeah. This, this structure is still doing what it was intended to do. And That's exactly it. And so, you know, let's, you know, continue to throw down, continue to organize, you know, for abolition, for economic justice, um, to get better people in positions to make better decisions in the structure that we do have in the meantime, while we're, we're building a whole new world. And I'm so grateful for really the abolitionist visionaries who are holding us to like, there, there actually could be something beyond this moment, you know, and, and, Let's all do what we can to move in that direction. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Hiatus is a really bad word. So thanks for scratching that. It's really <laughs> like, all right, we we just came through like a wild storm. And so now we gotta like, you know, like repair the ship a little bit, take a take a breath, at the same time, like get the ship ready again because we gotta sail out again. And it's important, I think, in our organizing to think about 
local elections, uh, how to build power. I know a lot of times people get frustrated and cynical about politics, but politics is us, right? Like mm-hmm. if we're if we're upset with our political system and our democracy, we're upset with ourselves, right? Don't try to like hold that at bay, like, oh, I don't want to deal with those politicians. No, that's how you build power. Th- these people should represent us. They work for us. Um, and if they're not representing us, then we need to change that. Um, so we can get people, you know, we've been working for um, against police brutality in Columbus, Ohio, which is like one of the highest per capita rate of police shootings uh, in the country. And um, we're just realizing, you know, we've got to get involved in like bringing up better candidates because we have a Democratic mayor and he's still not making the the changes. And we have a big, broad coalition. Um, we're still, you know, I was like, oh, OK, in two years or so, we'll we'll have all these reforms. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say, no, man, no, you know, it's gonna, it's so entrenched in the power of the police unions and all that. So um, we've got to build a movement and our faith voice is really critical, you know, and as we see here, our theology and moral critique and vision are really important. Um, We're working with 50,000 religious leaders around the country and we're building deeper networks in states like Georgia and Florida, but we all need to kind of throw down and and create a, a different moral vision for people in this country to give people courage to go through these times that are coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We need each other and we, we need that vision and we need, and we need that courage because it's hard. It is hard. It is hard. Yeah. Um, it is. And, and we think, you know, that's the cool thing about the Bible is just like these people were up against a lot, like none of it made sense, you yeah, know, yeah. like, Shipra and Pua and Miriam, they all throw down in Exodus chapter one. Yeah. You know, they were, I mean, they, this is a genocidal Pharaoh and they're like, you know, just this little tribe, you know, in Egypt, like, yeah. and God brings them out. So all throughout the Bible, that's what the Bible is. It's a story of people who went up against impossible odds and prevailed. And prevailed. And prevailed. And and more recently, even outside the Bible, when we look back at our ancestors and the unsung heroes, especially that I'm trying to discover now, um, how long, you know, the civil rights movement, God, you know, is rooted all the way back to the founding of the country, you know, and mm-hmm. then you have theologians like Howard Thurman, like creating the theology for the movement in the 40s and 50s and yeah. 60s and James Baldwin. So we got to realize, you know, all of us are, are um, everything we do. Um, is building that movement toward God's vision and plan. And it may not feel like it. Sometimes it just, you know, you're like, I don't know if this is going to make a difference. You know, I'm sure Rosa Parks, you know, <laughs> they, the women who were behind that strategy for a long time before she even set foot on this, but I don't know if this is going to make a difference. <laughs> she didn't know. We they, 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 knew. they didn't know. Like, I don't know. <laughs> we're going to try this and, and see. And, you know. And then, you know, we end up winning Georgia. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought that? And we decided to build a program there in 2014. And I was like really shocked we chose that state. It's my home state. So I was ecstatic. But I was like, yeah. I don't know. Should I really even say this to the board? I don't know. Are we going to, you know. It's so believing in the people. It's believing the people, you know, on the ground, kind of like the, the people in, you know, in, in these stories who were telling these stories and trying to make sense of their experience and you know, believe in the prophets and like, you know, believe in the people invest in us. Yes. And, and that's what, you know, y- you all have done at Faith and Public Life and, and what 
we did in, in Surge and we, you know, invested in door knocking, you know, poor and rural white folks in Georgia wow. and wow. increasing, you know, voter turnout there, like believing in the people. Oh, I love that. And, and, and then amazing things can happen. So I love that. And to invest in poor rural where did you yeah. say with white folks, you know, like yeah. we, we write off people. And this is the thing mm-hmm. I always, you know, want to say is like, never write off people, no matter who they are, you know, like God can do a new thing. That's my mantra right now. You know, that's that text from Isaiah. So that's so beautiful. It is beautiful. It's beautiful. Solidarity. That's why that principle is so important. It is. It is. It is. We need all of us. We need all of us. We all go together or we don't get it there at all. Uh, yeah. Old preacher um, I knew uh, said in a sermon once. Well, let's take a pause for a music break and come back with our closing. So a couple of um, calls to action for everyone coming out of our conversation together um, with Reverend Jen. And one is just for all of us um, as white folks to get really clear about our history, like the importance of really understanding our history and where we come from. And as Reverend Jen mentioned, the the attacks that are happening right now on critical race theory and the 1619 project, um, which we've talked about on on the podcast before, so, you know, let's all do our homework um, on these things and, and support those efforts to, to make sure that, that, you know, these projects are taught and that we have a clear understanding of what's happening and what's and clear about our history, like where we come from, how, how we were founded and remembering that. A second call to action is to join a, uh, the campaign that's being led by uh, Faith in Public Life, the Holy Recovery Campaign, um, particularly the emphasis on the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which are really to protect voting rights uh, and to fight voter suppression um, that is happening right now in our country. And we'll make sure that there is a a link to how to connect to that campaign in the transcript and when we share the episode out on social media. Um, And thank you again, Reverend Jen, for, for joining us today. Just such a such a delight to be in conversation with you about such important things. I'm so grateful for your work. And so thank you again. For it was this. so fun. I mean, yeah, this was so great just to throw down on this, this text and um, really vision together. Yeah, it's okay. very exciting. Yeah, Thank you. And thanks to all of you who are joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. Um, We'd love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the listener survey that's on our podcast page at showingupforracialjustice.org. And we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks who may be checking us out. And next week, we'll have a resistance word from Seth Wispelay. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. 
you know, please give us a like or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available uh, for every episode on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And of course, always a huge thanks to our sound editor, Max Pearl. Reverend Jen, would you offer us a blessing to close us out? Yes, let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this vision that you have given to us, that there is another way to live together. It doesn't have to be a domination system. Oh, what music, what music in a world that is full of tyrants, that we together, we the people can rise up in solidarity and resist. And no matter what the odds are, you are with us and you will lead us out as you have for your people time and time again throughout history. We take hope in that vision. We place our faith in it. We pray you give us courage and remind us that you are the God who leads slaves out of Egypt and into liberation. You are that God and you will lead us out. And what is ours to do is to remain faithful to that which you place in our heart. So go with us now. May we take you with us as we face the powers and principalities of our day, the ones that impact us individually, the ones that impact us communally. It is freedom for us as white people to dismantle the white supremacy that we ourselves have grown up with. What freedom to get that out of our souls Mm. and to understand the plans that you have for us, not Mm. to exploit others and not to be exploited through our racial fears and resentments, but to move into freedom with you. Mm. We thank you for that promise. And we take joy in it. Whatever the conditions we face, we, we take joy. It is joy to be in the struggle together and with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.